Good morning, church. If you've got your Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, gospel according to Luke, the 10th chapter. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to have the words up on the screen. And if I haven't met you before, my name is Chase Jacobs. I'm on staff here at the church. And we are at part two of a series that we're doing through certain of the parables in the gospel according to Luke. So parables are stories or illustrations that Jesus uses to teach us about his kingdom and what it's like to live in his, his kingdom. And this parable that we're looking at this week is maybe one of the best known, uh, certainly one of the most beloved, and rightly so. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. So we're in Luke chapter 10, and we'll be in verses 25 through 37. So let me read this whole section, and then we'll meditate on it for a moment. So this is Luke 10, 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. These are the words of Jesus. Let's pray one more time. Jesus, you are our good shepherd, and we pray that you would lead us, because we are needy people. And God, I'm a needy man. I need your help this morning to explain this clearly. We all need your help understanding it, really understanding it, that, that this is true, that this really is your word. It's your word for us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would meet us in our needs. You would give us your grace. Open up our ears, open up our hearts, some of us even for the first time. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. So as I was doing my research for this sermon this week, uh, I came across a poem by a 19th century poet from England named A.H. Clough. And A.H. Uh, Clough was a, a deeply skeptical man. He wrote a whole, another poem about why the resurrection of Jesus wasn't real. Uh, but this poem that I found called The Latest Decalogue, it's kind of a parody on the Ten Commandments. It was a, a way of Clough uh, satirically condemning what he saw as the religious hypocrisy of so-called Christians in England and Europe at the time that he wrote it. And so I want to read this to you. It just kind of goes through the Ten Commandments uh, looking at a, a hypocritical understanding of these Ten Commandments. And, and it's, it's in kind of old language. You know, he's English. What do you do? Um, so I'll have the words up on the screen. And you don't have to get all of it. I think you'll get, get the big idea. So let me read this. This is the latest Decalogue by A.H. Clough. Thou shalt have one God only. Who would tax himself to worship two? God's image nowhere shalt thou see save haply in the currency, means money. Swear not at all, 
since for thy curse thine enemy is not the worse. At church on Sunday to attend will help to keep the world thy friend. Honor thy parents, that is, all from whom promotion may befall. Thou shalt not kill, but needst not strive officiously to keep alive. Adultery, it is not fit or safe for women to commit. Thou shalt not steal an empty feet when tis so lucrative to cheat. False witness not to bear be strict and cautious ere you contradict. Thou shalt not covet, but tradition sanctions the keenest competition. The sum of all is, thou shalt love if anybody, God above, at any rate shall never labor more than thyself to love thy neighbor. And I know A.H. Clough and Jesus Christ would disagree about many things. Jesus' own resurrection, probably chief among them. But one thing that I think they would agree on is that this kind of religious hypocrisy has no place in the kingdom of God. If you read the Gospels, there was no one that Jesus went after more fervently than the religious leaders of his own day. The scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers who were masters at preaching God's law and yet in their own hearts twisting and minimizing their implications and proving that for all their outward religiosity, inwardly they were dead. And they didn't really love God at all because if they really loved God, they would have loved others. That's the big idea of this parable. It's historically been called the parable of the good Samaritan. It goes right to the heart of true religion, true love of God. And it says that your love for God is proved by your love for your neighbor. So this whole section begins with a really good question in verses 25 through 28. A good question. Verse 25, it says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. Now, when you hear lawyer, don't think it's an, like an attorney in our own day. This is a religious lawyer. This is, you know, in their, in their time, religion and civil law were all bound up together. So this was a, a student of Moses' law, the Mosaic law. And he's coming to Jesus, and he's trying to catch Jesus in a trap regarding the law. Because if he can get Jesus to say something contrary to their understanding of the Mosaic law, then they can condemn Jesus, which is what the religious elite have been trying to do this whole time in the, the gospel according to Luke. So he asked Jesus a question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And that's actually a really good question. It's a question that we should all be asking. And behind that question, there are lots of other important questions. Where did all of this come from? Why are we here? What is the meaning of it all? What is God like? How do we know what God is like? And most of all, what happens when I die? Everyone has to have an answer to these questions. In fact, everyone has an answer to these questions. Just some people have actually thought about their answers to these questions. Like this lawyer has. He's a student of the Mosaic Law, and so he's got an understanding, a deep understanding of eternal life and what he's looking forward to based on everything that the Old Testament prophets have laid out before him. As one commentator put it, the lawyer's question is really this, what must I do to share in the resurrection of the righteous at the end? Or another way that you could ask that question is about the kingdom of God. How do I enter into the kingdom of God, the, the state of reality when God finally reigns over everything for all time and all causes of lawlessness and sin and death are removed and the righteous are raised to live with God and with his king, his Messiah, forever and ever? How do we get in on that? That's the question that we should all be asking. That's the question that he asks Jesus to see how Jesus responds, and Jesus responds in a very wise way by answering his question with another question. Verse 26, 
what is written in the law? How do you read it? So he puts it back on the lawyer's turf. You tell me, you're a student of the law. What does the law say? So verse 27, the lawyer answers, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. That formed a major part of a very important Jewish prayer called the Shema that they would pray twice a day. So he's quoting the Shema back to Jesus. But he doesn't just stop there. He also says at the end of verse 27, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And Leviticus 19, 18 is quoted verbatim seven times in the New Testament. Did you know that? This little verse from Leviticus, seven times. As we saw in Galatians chapter 5, 14, the Apostle Paul wrote, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what this lawyer is saying is that between Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, love God, and Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor, you have the totality of God's law. This is why many people at this time called this the great commandment. And you know what? Jesus completely agrees with that understanding. Actually, in the book of Matthew and in the book of Mark, Jesus himself says what the great commandment is. And he says this, Deuteronomy 6, 5, love God. Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor. And here, verse 28, Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And when Jesus says, do this and you will live, I don't think that we should understand Jesus is advocating for some kind of works righteousness here. Although that might be the understanding that this lawyer is coming to Jesus with. Okay, if I do that good enough and well enough, then I will have eternal life. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I don't think Jesus is saying that it's only good, obedient people who go into heaven. But I also don't think that Jesus, when he says, do this and live is holding up an impossible standard to the lawyer or to us. I don't think we should understand this as Jesus saying, this is the law, you'll never reach it. No, I don't think that is it either. I think when Jesus says, do this and you will live, what he means is this is the kind of person who enters into the kingdom of heaven. But how do you become that kind of person who loves God and loves their neighbor? Remember what we saw in the the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians says that you are not justified, you're not made right with God by doing anything. You're not going to stand before God and say, God, you should let me into your kingdom because I did this and this and this and I was a pretty good person. That's not how it works at all. What did the book of Galatians say? What do we believe? That, that we're not saved by our works, we're saved by what God has worked for us, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And it's by faith in Jesus Christ that we enter into the kingdom. But what, what did we see? That the, though we're saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is what? Never alone. All kinds of good works, a changed heart obeying the law of Christ that comes out of our faith in Jesus. And so I think that's what Jesus is saying when he says, you got it. Love God. Love others. Do this. Think saying, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. That's a beautiful way of talking about faith, isn't it? Of believing, of loving God for what he has done. And if you really love God, you are going to love others. And if you don't love others, then you probably don't love God. Which means you're not really in the kingdom. This leads us to a bad question. Verse 29. The lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And actually, on its face, that's not necessarily a bad question either. This was debated among the Jews at this time. When Leviticus 19.18 says, love your neighbor as yourself, it, it really referred to the covenant community of Israel, the people that had believed in God and, and were brought into this covenant relationship with God. And then it also included people that joined themselves, foreigners, sojourners that joined themselves into Israel. Those were all your neighbors. But what about the Gentiles? What about the people outside of the nation of Israel? All of these other nations, are they our neighbors? 
What about in the first century when the Jews had been conquered by all of these Gentile nations and now everywhere they looked, there were Greeks and there were Romans, non-Jews. Are we supposed to love them? Are they our neighbors? And then what about these Jews that are, yeah, they're Jews, but they don't really keep the covenant very well. They don't keep it as well as I do. Are they my neighbor? So this was something that was debated. It was uh, on its face a reasonable question, except that we know what the lawyer's motives were, don't we? Because the text tells us. He wanted to justify himself. He didn't ask that question because he was really concerned about rightly interpreting God's law so that he could obey it more faithfully. He just wanted to know what the minimum requirement was so that he could get into the kingdom. And it's so ironic that he's asking a question about who should I love when his focus is entirely on himself. Do you get that? He's asking about who to love selfishly. Because I'm really just in it for me. I want to make sure I'm good. So tell me, who do, I, who do I need to love? The sum of all is, thou shalt love, if anybody God above, at any rate shall never labor more than thyself to love thy neighbor. He's only loving himself, even when he's asking about who to love. He had a hypocritical self-focused, self-justifying, minimizing approach to how he obeyed God's commands. And we should be very careful about this ourselves. Anytime you use this same kind of moral reasoning as you come to God's commandments, anytime you hear God laying out for you what his will is, and then you come back and ask, okay, but where's the line there? So I can get like right up next to it without going over? How far is too far before I'm sinning? How much is too much? Or how much is just enough? When you're doing that, you're you're putting the focus on yourself. You're being a hypocrite. Because your concern is to to not love God and, and do what would make God happy. Instead, your focus is on doing just enough that you stay good. It's enough that you stay comfortable. You're actually lowering God's standard so that you can have the satisfaction of knowing that you are keeping his commandments and so that other people would think that you're a really good person or that you yourself would believe you're a good person. So this lawyer knows God's law and what it says about love, but in his question, of who he is supposed to love, he proves that he only loves himself. And that means that he doesn't even love God. And a faith that does not love God is not the kind of faith that enters into eternal life. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows this about this man, and he knows this about us. I think there's a lot of similarities to this story and the story of the rich young ruler, which is later in the book of Luke, where the rich man comes to Jesus and asks a very similar question. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And there it says Jesus knows his heart. He knows what this man lacks. He knows the one area that's keeping him back from actually loving God and believing in God and being saved. And like there, here in Luke 10, Jesus is going to challenge this man at the area where he needs it most. And he's going to challenge him with a parable. So this is the parable in verses 30 to 35, the Good Samaritan. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when he says that, everybody in their head, they're picturing a Jewish man. And they know this path that Jesus is talking about, this path from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a long 17-mile hike. It drops down 3,000 feet in elevation. It winds through very barren Judean hill country. And it was notoriously treacherous. It wound through these hills, and so there were lots of blind turns, and then there were tons of caves in the mountains there for robbers to hide in. And that's exactly what Happens here. The man fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And half dead means that if nobody helps him, he'll die. He cannot help himself. He is laying there on the road, dying. But good news. Verse 31 somebody's coming. 
Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. I mean, what luck. And it's not just someone, it's a, it's a priest. It's somebody in the family of Aaron. This is the religious elite of the elites. This is a holy man. This is a righteous man. This is somebody who knows God's law. And it comes to where the man is, and it says, when the priest saw the man, he passed by on the other side. He didn't help. He left that man there to die. Thou shalt not kill, but needst not strive officiously to keep alive. It's not my problem. We may ask why. What was, what was the priest's motive? Why did he cross over to the other side? Some commentators have made much of the fact that the priest was afraid of ritual defilement. That if he touched a, a dead body, then he would become defiled and he wouldn't be able to fulfill his duty in the temple for some time. And if that's true, if that's what's going on here, these commentators argue, then the point is that this man was letting his observance of the Mosaic law take precedent over what Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And that's a, that's a great point. The gospel makes that point in many other places, but, but I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think that's the right interpretation here because, first of all, the parable doesn't give us that detail. We should be really careful to not read things into the parables that aren't actually there. But I think there is a detail that we should look at, that this priest was going away from Jerusalem, not to Jerusalem. So if he was working in the temple, well, his service was done for a while. And so ritual defilement would not have been a concern of his. So what are we to, to make of his crossing over to the other side. The, the text doesn't give us what his motive was. And so what I think we're supposed to see here is here's a religious man who sees someone in need and didn't help. Verse 32, so likewise, a Levite. So a Levite is a, another temple worker. It's a step down on the religious hierarchy. It's like a, a priest's assistant. But look what happens. So likewise, a Levite when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. It's the same thing. It's, it's almost the exact same wording, isn't it? And at this point, I think the lawyer's kind of clued into what's going on because he knows how a parable works. The parable always has like things grouped together and then at the end, there's a contrast. It's kind of like the punchline in a joke and there's usually a progression or a digression. And so he says, okay, you had a priest now a Levite, I get where this is going. Okay, who's going to be the hero of the story? Is it just going to be some Jew? You know, like one of these fishermen that Jesus has as his disciples? I bet that guy's not even a Pharisee. It's actually more surprising than that. Verse 33, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. Now, we, we use the phrase good Samaritan all the time, and you know, I don't know that we all know what a Samaritan actually is. At this time, the Samaritans were a distinct ethnic group that lived in the same region that the Jews lived. In fact, they were distantly related. The Samaritans were descended from the northern Israelite tribes after there was a, a civil war between the Jews and the northern tribes of Israel. And these people, these northern tribes, many, many centuries before this happened, they had departed. They had broken the covenant with God. And they, and they said, we don't want to worship God in Jerusalem at the altar that he set up. We want to make our own altar and worship our own gods. And so they departed from the covenant. They were worshiping idols. And because of that, God conquered them with another people called the Assyrians. And, and after that, what, what remained of those northern Israelite tribes? Well, they just intermarried with the Gentile people that had settled there. And so by the time we come to the first century when this is taking place, the Jews regarded the Samaritans as, as compromised in every way. They were worse than Gentiles. They were religiously compromised. They were ethnically compromised in their mind. In John chapter 4, the story of the woman at the well, remember, she was a Samaritan woman. That was in a Samaritan village. And the text says that the woman was surprised that Jesus was talking to her because, as the text says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She was used to being despised, rejected by Jews. And then 
the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 9, the chapter right before this one, Jesus has started making his way from Galilee down to Jerusalem, and he wants to pass through a Samaritan village on his way. And so he, descend, he sends his disciples ahead of him and says, hey, let them, ask them if they'll let us come through their village. And the Samaritans reject Jesus because it says he has his face set to Jerusalem and to not, not to their mountain, not to their altars. And after that happens, James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, they come back and they ask Jesus if they can pray to ask God to blow up that village like Sodom and Gomorrah. They actually asked that. And thankfully, Jesus rebuked them. But do you see, there's a lot of tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. They, they had ethnic pride and hostility towards one another. There was, there was cultural animosity. There was religious disagreement of the most violent kind. They were enemies. There were ever two groups of people that were enemies. It was these two people, and that's the point. Verse 33, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. I think that's, that's the big idea right there. This actually helps us understand the motives of the priest and the Levite, at least their lack of motive. It says, they saw the man, and when they saw they went their own way on the other side. They were only interested in themselves, which means they didn't see him at all. They didn't see him the way that the Samaritan did. And it all begins right there. It begins with seeing. It begins with having eyes to see the people that God has placed around you that are hurting, that have real needs. And when I say needs, it can be any kind of need, physical needs, material needs, emotional needs, relational needs, most of all spiritual needs. Do we see that? Do we even know the people around us that, that are hurting, that have problems, that, that need these things? Because in our own day, it's so easy to insulate ourselves from other people and from their problems. And we can be very selective about who we actually will spend our time with and who we will bear the burdens of. It can just be so easy to not even see, to just ignore and be totally tuned out to the problems that other people are having. I would really hope, you know, that if we all got dismissed from church this morning and we went out into the parking lot and there was somebody laying there bloodied up and naked in the parking lot, that we would all do something. We would see that and do something because that's an obvious need. It's right there in front of us. But so many needs that people have, especially in our own day, are not obvious. And so for us, church, I think we see by listening. And we listen by asking. I think we need to go out of our way to be around people, especially the people that we would not ordinarily be around. Even looking around this room, seeing people in this room, our own brothers and sisters, especially the household of God, people that might have needs, well, they're not going to wear it on their sleeve. But if you take them out to lunch and you ask, hey, what's going on? Is there anything that you need help with? Is there anything that I can do for you? But it all begins with seeing. And we see by getting close to people. So let me encourage you to get close, to ask, to listen. And when you do that, especially when you sit down with somebody that's, that's very different from you, and you hear about their life, you hear about their needs, you hear about things that they struggle with that you hadn't even thought of before, they start to become something to you. They stop being just another member of a demographic and they start to become a person like you are. And when you hear this person talking about what's hard in their life, what they're struggling with, then something will happen like what happened with the Samaritan. Verse 33, a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. I love the word compassion. I love it, one, because in Greek, it's a really funny word, splunknitzamai. And it comes from the word splunkna, which means your guts. I think it's where we get the word spleen from, splunkna. Write that one down. But this word compassion, to, to have compassion, to feel compassion, it, it means it's down there. In your inward being, you, you feel this so deeply that it's almost visceral. And it is a feeling, first and foremost. It's an affection, I think, is a better word. 
And God wants us to have rightly formed affections. He wants us to be sad about the things that we should be sad about to the right proportion. He wants us to be happy about the things that we should be happy about in the right proportion. The things that God gets sad about. The things that God gets happy about. He wants us to have these right feelings like he did. The word compassion, it, it really, it's an affection that comes from the ability to sympathize or even empathize with somebody else. That you realize that when this person is in front of you and they're sharing their struggles and their hurts and their needs, that you, if you were in their position, would feel the exact same way. This all goes back to the great commandment or the way that Jesus rephrased that, that you should do for other people what you would want them to do for you. That all requires an ability to empathize. And when we can empathize, then we have compassion. This word compassion in the New Testament is, it is used far and away by the most, the most to refer to Jesus himself. Jesus feels compassion in the New Testament more than anyone. He's walking around and he sees the sick. He has compassion. He sees the hungry. He has compassion. He sees the crowds that Matthew says are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And it says, Jesus felt compassion. Imagine that. Jesus Christ, the God-man, feeling in his inward being pity and concern because he knows. He's able to sympathize with us. He knows what it feels like. But here's the thing. If you have time, you should do this. Just read through all the Gospels and see all the places where it says Jesus has compassion. And then watch out because every time Jesus feels compassion, he does something awesome, something to help to actually help meet the needs of the people that he has pity on. Whether it's one person or a whole group of people. Jesus doesn't feel compassion and then say, man, what a bummer. What a shame. Somebody should do something about that. Jesus doesn't feel compassion and then feel the need to let everybody else know that he feels compassion. He doesn't change his social media picture to something so that you know he knows how bad something is. No, Jesus feels compassion and he does something. He does something marvelous. He does something that meets that need. And that's, and that's the point, is that right affection leads to right action, or else it's not a right affection, not yet. And this lawyer, he's coming to Jesus, and he's asking Jesus a question about obligations. Jesus, what, what am I supposed to do? Give me, give me the task. Give me the list. And if you would, please make that list as short as possible so that I can check it off and then I know that I will inherit eternal life. What am I supposed to do? And Jesus comes back and he asks, what are you supposed to feel? What are you supposed to be on the inside? What kind of person inherits eternal life? Because as the text says, the Samaritan feels compassion for this man, compassion like Jesus feels for the crowds. And just like when Jesus feels compassion, the Samaritan feels compassion. And so watch out. I see at least seven things that flow out of his compassion. Seven deeds, seven actions. But it all begins with that right affection. First, it says he went to him. Do you notice that? The other guys, they see him, they cross over to the other side, the Samaritan. He sees him and he goes to him. He gets near to him. Secondly, it says he bound up his wounds. The only way he could do that most likely was he had to tear his own clothes so that he could tie up where this man was hurting. Third, he poured on oil and wine. That was a way of disinfecting the wound and a way of easing the pain a little bit. But that was also his food. That was his provision for the 17-mile trip that he was trying to make. He pours it out for, for a stranger, and not just a stranger, an enemy, an enemy. Fourth, he sets him on his own animal and brings him to an inn. That means he walked, however far it was. Fifth, he took care of him. He nursed him. And he stayed all night. Did you see that? 35, it says the next day. That means he sat by that man's bedside all night, caring for him. Sixth, it says the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. 
He paid out of his own purse. That's two days' wages for an average worker. This was enough money for this man to stay in this inn for a month. I'm going to cover all the costs. And whatever extra cost there is, I will do whatever it takes to make sure his needs are met until I come back. And that's the seventh. He's going to come back. He hasn't forgotten this man. It's not one and done. Okay, are you set up? You good? Okay, I'm going I'm to go. No, I'm going to remember I'm going to remember you. I'm going to think about you. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to check on you. And I'm going to make sure you're okay. All of this flowing out of his compassion, his affection, his love. This action that he does, this this love that he shows for this, this neighbor. It's incredible. It's abundant. It's sacrificial. It's self giving. And it's shocking. This is not supposed to be the hero of the story, a Samaritan. And that's how the story ends. And then Jesus asks one more question, and and this time it's the right question. This is the question that the lawyer should have been asking all along, verses 36 and 37. Jesus asks, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Did you see what Jesus did there? He, He inverted the question. What did the lawyer ask? Who is my neighbor? What does Jesus ask? Who was a neighbor? He takes the focus off of the outward, external, duty-oriented, who am I supposed to serve? And he puts it on us. Don't ask who is my neighbor. Ask are you a neighbor? Are you a good neighbor? What does it mean to be a good neighbor? These are the right questions. And the lawyer knows the answer. Verse 37, he said, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. But in giving kind of this sneaky answer, he puts the spotlight on a very important word, mercy. Mercy. Mercy is the name for the action that flows out of compassion. If compassion is having the right affections, it works itself out in mercy. And mercy in this context, it means meeting needs where you see them, whenever you see them, however you see them, and with everything that you have. You don't, mercy doesn't ask if this person deserves it, if this person deserves this help. Mercy doesn't ask, well, can I really, can I do enough? Mercy just jumps right in there, and it gives the help, and it gives it abundantly, and it gives it self-givingly and sacrificially. Mercy is using whatever power you have, whatever resources you have, whatever influence you have to help the people that you have seen and have had compassion on. And here, I love this in this story. It transcends these ethnic bounds. It transcends these religious disagreements. It transcends all of the hostility and the animosity. The neighbor is the one who showed him mercy. And then at the end of our passage, still in verse 33, Jesus says to the lawyer, okay, you go and do likewise. We don't know what happens. <laughs> I don't know what the lawyer did with that. I really hope that he, he got it. But we know that this wasn't just for him, right? This is, this is for us. What are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to obey Jesus when he says, okay, now go and do likewise? I think even those without eyes to see without ears to hear they could they could make one easy connection from the story they could say that that yeah that one's good the moral of this story is go out and be compassionate go out and be merciful go meet needs and is is that it is that what jesus is trying to get out here i mean that wouldn't be the worst thing if everybody went out and was more compassionate and more merciful and i and i actually think that's where jesus wants us to end up but no i think there's a lot more here if you understand the deeper meaning in this parable of what jesus is really trying to teach us about his kingdom in this parable there's a lot more here and if we understand that then we will actually be the kind of compassionate and merciful people that inherit eternal life and that's what we're really in this for so how do we understand what Jesus is trying to get at? Well, we can, we can understand this this way. is to just ask, who am I supposed to identify with in this parable? Because that's how we read stories, right? Every, you ever read a story, and of course, you're going to put yourself in the story. You want to live in this world. You're going to go with those characters. And, and, you know, let's be real. Who do you identify with in a story? The hero. 
right? So you read the parable of the Good Samaritan, and you think, okay, I'm supposed to be the, the Samaritan. I'm identifying with the Samaritan. Well, let me just say, a good rule of thumb when you're reading the Bible, as much as you want to identify with David fighting Goliath, as much as you want to identify with the disciples being really, really faithful, I think you should always start by identifying with the cowards and identifying with the hypocrites, identifying with the doubters. If you read the Gospels and you think when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees that he's not talking to you, you're probably misreading the Bible. I think we should identify with the lawyer in this story. Identify with the lawyer because we are all prone to self-justifying, to minimizing and, and to changing the standards so that we can be good with God on our own terms. And I think this parable wants us to see that, that the proud, the self-justifying, those that rely on their religious status or those people that aren't religious but they still rely on their own moral code one way or another and they think that's what is going to get me into the kingdom and as long as I can have the law figured out I'm going to be fine people that say I'm going to inherit eternal life because I'm a good person I think they should really look and see if they're not like the priest and the Levite you think you're a good person but when the time comes for you to love somebody, you really just love yourself. I mean, can we, can we not admit that? That all of us from time to time don't love our neighbor the way we should. And so that proves that we're all sinners. It proves that none of us should be let into God's kingdom because none of us is good enough. We have all, one way or another, fallen short of God's perfect standard, and it's that perfect standard alone that will bring you into heaven. If we can't keep the great commandment perfectly, then we stand condemned for our sins. So if you've ever been a priest, if you've ever been a Levite, and I think this story is working. I mean, this is, this is the amazing thing about parables is it works on all of these different levels because I think Jesus is bringing this into a, a redemptive historical level as well that he's speaking to all of the Jews in this. That the Jews thought, just like this lawyer, that just by being Jewish, they would be allowed into the kingdom of God. That because they had the priesthood, because they had the Levites, because God chose their forefathers so long ago, it didn't really matter what was going on in here. It was just the fact that they were part of this covenant community that was what was going to get them into the kingdom not realizing that they hated the gentiles they hated people made in the image of god that misunderstanding of of god's law and god's purpose has proved that they didn't actually love or know god at all because it wasn't the priesthood that saved you it wasn't the law that saved you it was faith and even with the story god's hinting at how he's going to open up the door of faith to samaritans to, to Israel's enemies because his love was all-encompassing. There were not going to be any boundaries. But we identify with the lawyer, we identify with the priest and the Levite, and we realize none of us is, is perfectly obedient to God's great commandment. And so all of us can then move to identifying with the guy on the road, laying there half dead. That's all of us in our sin. That is all of us in our spiritual state once we realize that we have broken God's commandments and we all have, then that means that we are dead. And not half dead, dead dead in our trespasses and sins. And we need God to intervene. We need mercy. We need help. And God passes by and he sees us. He has seen us in our sin. And if we will cry out, Lord, have mercy, he will show us mercy because we have a compassionate Savior. God sees us and he acts. He acts just like this Samaritan does. I mean, think about this. The Son of God would choose to identify his work with a Samaritan. Right? Because Jesus is the better Samaritan. This despised, rejected enemy of God's people and that's such a key component of this because as Jesus comes though he comes to be our savior though he comes to love he's greeted like an enemy from the people there at this time and, and even from all of us this is what the book of Colossians says 
that all of us were once alienated from God, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We were all enemies of God. And so if, if God wanted to, he would have every reason to say, you're despised because you despised me. I'm rejecting you because you rejected me. I'm going to help you? Of course not. But that's not what he did. Colossians 1.22, now he has reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus helped. He had compassion on us and he helped us even though there was every kind of dis- dis- difference, every kind of division, every kind of disagreement. There is nobody that you have a problem with that you didn't have a bigger problem with God. There is nobody that is more different from you than you are different from God. But God didn't see that as a reason to not help you. He saw that as a reason to come near to you. Just like the Samaritan did. First, he came near to us. He came down out of heaven. He was born as a man so that he could be right alongside us. He could sympathize with us. And that as a man, he could, he could obey God's commandment perfectly where we failed. Second, he bound up our wounds by being wounded on our behalf. Even though he was perfect, he, he died on the cross as a substitute for our sins so that by his stripes we might be healed. Third, he pours out on us his mercy and grace. If you believe in Jesus and the work that he did on the cross, your sins are forgiven. Your wounds are healed. You are cleaned. You are anointed by the Holy Spirit. And by that Spirit, he carries us all the way. He upholds us. Fifth, even now, he cares for us. He's with us all night, every night, and all day. Every day, he will never leave our side or forsake us. Six, he paid it all. There is nothing that's lacking in your salvation. He paid for all of it on the cross, and he's going to make sure that what he started there, he's going to finish, because seventh, he's going to come back. He remembers you. He remembers us, church, and he's going to finish what he started. The kingdom came when he first arrived. The resurrection began when he came out of that tomb, but we're still waiting for it to be finished. We're still waiting for our mortal bodies to be fully healed in the resurrection of the righteous. And Jesus is coming back because he loves us. He loves us. The first of the great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. That's a commandment. That's God saying, love me. But we don't, we don't hear that from a needy, desperate God that's like, love me. This is coming from a God that says, I already loved you. I love you with all of my being, and I always have. And so when I'm commanding you to love me, what I'm really just saying is know how I love you. And keep growing in your understanding of my love. Keep growing in your understanding of what I did for you and my son, Jesus. And the more you know how much I love you, the more you are going to love me. So we can hear that commandment, love the Lord your God. And so just church, press into the gospel. Press into understanding how much God loves you. And how much God is love. And when you know how much God loves you, you'll start to know how much God loves the people around you the same way. And then why he would say, hey, love them too. I love them. You love them. I loved you when you were in need. Now they're in need. You love them like that. And if you don't, if you don't love other people from the heart, if you're not willing to show people that are in need the mercy that God has shown you in Christ, well then, you must not understand yet what Jesus did for you. 1 John four, nineteen: we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. 
So that's how we come to this parable. We move through the characters in this story that we realize that we're all hypocritical priests and Levites and lawyers. And we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And Jesus, who is the better Samaritan, has shown mercy on us. He has healed us by giving himself on the cross and giving us an example. Only through that, only through the gospel can we come to the end and say, okay, now I want to be a good Samaritan like Jesus was. I want to have compassion and I want to have mercy because God has shown compassion and mercy for me and kingdom people are like the king. And so then we understand what Jesus means when he says, go and do likewise. And so that should have you starting to think, okay, how? How do I go and do likewise? What does that, what does that actually look like? What am I supposed to do? Well, I'm not going to give you a list. This guy wanted a list. I actually, as I think about this more, I love how, how wide open this is. Jesus is not overly prescriptive about who you show mercy to. He just says, do it. Just go do mercy. And so we just think, okay, have eyes to see. I want to listen. I want to ask. I want to I discern those needs. I pray, God, lead me to those people that have those needs. I want to have right affections. This all begins in the heart. And so we come back and we thank God for the new covenant in Christ. This new covenant of giving us a new heart. Taking out the heart of stone, giving us a heart of flesh. We have a heart of flesh towards God. We know God's love. Because he loved us first. We love others. With what God has put in our hand, given us on this journey, we use it to love other people. I took the liberty of rewriting the last stanza of A.H. Clough's poem. You know, because his was a parody, so I'm just doing a parody of a parody. The sum of all is, thou shalt love with all your heart thy God above, who loved you first, so thou might labor more than thyself to love thy neighbor. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would do that work, that you would help us to know how much you have loved us in Jesus Christ, and then that you would work in us compassion. You would give us opportunities to, to see people in their needs and meet their needs, because you've met all of our needs in Jesus. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody in here yet that, that they're still a lawyer, or they're still, they still feel like they're the, the man lying in the road, Lord, I pray that you would show mercy to them like you have to us. You would give them the hope of knowing that they will inherit eternal life with us because of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.